The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. O gracious light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven, O Jesus Christ, holy and blessed, now as we come to the setting of the sun and our eyes behold the vesper light, we sing your praises, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices, O Son of God, O giver of life, and to be glorified through all the worlds. Amen. Human beings have long been fascinated by and drawn to mountains. There's a sense of accomplishment, right? Adventure, danger. There's this euphoric sense of beauty and, and grandeur when you summit, even like a minor hill out in the gorge, right? Just the feeling of being up there and seeing everything around you is incredible. Now, evolutionary biologists who seem to ruin everyone's fun, as far as I can tell, would suggest that these are just feelings uh, that are leftovers from our ancestors who climbed mountains to have a better view uh, of any approaching enemies. And so what you're feeling in that euphoria is really just what used to feel like safety and like being kind of in charge. But if our forebears were to stand among us, I think they might offer a strikingly different explanation. I think they might tell us that mountains were oftentimes where they encountered God. When Abraham and Isaac go to meet God in the place of sacrifice, they climb a mountain. When Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness, he led them to Mount Sinai. In our Old Testament lesson this evening, we're told that God says to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. And so he goes, and the cloud of God's glory covers the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. And to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain, and Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain. Elijah, Israel's great prophet, did battle against the priests of Baal on a mountain. It was there that the fire of God came down and consumed Elijah's waterlogged sacrifice. The mountain is a place of glory, 
Even just visually, it seems to pierce the sky, cutting from earth into heaven. It's a place where authority gets established. Matthew, in his gospel account, has much to say to us about mountains. It is to a mountain peak that, Jesus, or that Satan takes Jesus in the temptation, and there he offers him false glory and power over all the nations of the earth if only Jesus would bow down and worship him. Jesus, of course, realizes that this offer is just like it was in the garden. It's false. It will lead nothing to nothing but death and destruction. And so he refuses and waits for the moment when he will be truly glorified on the mountain. Jesus also ascends a mountain in Matthew's telling to give his manifesto, his initial teaching, a teaching so associated with mountains that we call it the Sermon on the Mount. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus sweat drops of blood and cried out to his Father that this cup would pass from him, but nevertheless, your will be done, not mine, that is at the Mount of Olives. And of course, the place where Jesus is executed like a common criminal is Mount Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. We'll circle back to that one in a moment. First, we're going to look at the authority of Jesus the glory of Jesus, and the mercy of Jesus. In our gospel lesson this evening, the appearance of Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration is meant to highlight something very, very important. Namely, that there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is a relationship between the revelation that God gave in his lawgiver Moses and in his prophets personified by Elijah, and what is happening now in the life of Christ. Moses represents the first five books of Scripture, the law. Elijah represents the prophets, which is often a gloss for the rest of the Old Testament, or at least huge portions of it. In other words, these two men embody the authority of God's revelation to Israel, and here they are talking with Jesus. The Old Testament is quite literally in dialogue with Jesus. Peter, who just cannot stay quiet, if you know anything about Peter, seems to assume that there's sort of a level playing field relationship happening here. And so he's like, yeah, why don't we build three, three tabernacles? There's one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The three of you are all just together, right? One for each of these authoritative leaders on the same plane. But the voice from heaven, which rudely interrupts Peter, because again, if you know Peter, you know he'll just keep talking if you don't stop him somehow, does not say to the people there, these are my beloved servants, listen to them. Rather, God the Father says, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. As Jesus tells the religious leaders in John's gospel, you search the scriptures because you think they will give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. This is not a level playing field. Jesus is not simply another religious leader. Jesus did not come in the flesh to leave a breadcrumb trail of wisdom and secrets to true happiness and life. He is not the Buddha. He is not Confucius. He didn't come to bring social revolution He's not Malcolm X. He's not Gandhi. He didn't come to make all of our dreams come true and shower us with gifts. 
It turns out he is also not Oprah. He's not a stenographer who wrote down someone else's laws and ideas. He's not Moses. Moses was the greatest prophet Israel had ever known. He wrote down the words of God. He experienced the glorious presence of God himself. He enumerated the sacrifices that would be required of God's people, and his face radiated with the glory of God after he met with him, so much so that, that the people begged him to put on a veil. But it faded. The light on Moses' face was from without. And Moses never once provided purification from sin. Christ here on this mountain radiates from within because he is the image of the invisible God. After all, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's the difference between Jesus and every other human being. God only speaks directly, audibly to earth twice in the Synoptic Gospels, but both times the message is almost exactly the same. This is my priceless, precious, beloved son. I am deeply pleased with him. Stamp of approval. And in this particular case, he ends that speech with, listen to him. Not them, him. Jesus has been given authority over all things. Christianity is not and never will be part of the buffet of religious options or self-help suggestions by which you can reach enlightenment or self-actualization. Christianity is the conviction that God has spoken to us by his Son, who is the end, the heir of all things, and the beginning, the word through whom all things were created. The Mount of Transfiguration is a five-second preview to let us know that Jesus is not just some dude with some good ideas about being a nice person. He is uncreated light. Does Buddha or Gandhi or Moses or Oprah or Malcolm X have truth? Sure. Absolutely. But any truth that exists can only be seen by the uncreated light. And all truth is grounded in the authority of that light of the world as the Son of God. And it is this light that is the glory of Christ. As he meets with Moses and Elijah in this moment, they are enveloped by what seems to be an oxymoron, a bright cloud. Fire and cloud have always been present when God manifests himself in glory, as we saw in our Old Testament lesson. And as we'll see in a moment, this is very revealing about who God is because the second that his brightness illumines our mind, his cloudiness confounds us. 
For a moment, Jesus' face burns bright as the sun. His clothes become like white light. It's an echo of the prophet Daniel's vision. He wrote, Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. And Daniel continues, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is what was being glimpsed for a few moments in the Transfiguration. The reason that we use sanctus bells in our liturgy is almost like an alarm. It's a reminder that you are being surrounded by glory, by angels and archangels who have not ceased since last week when we joined in with them to cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy God! Heaven and earth are filled with your glory. You are encountering the unapproachable light of God himself. No longer does he simply hide in a terrible cloud. He has come in Christ. Of course, Peter, James, and John fall face down like dead men, terrified out of their minds, because when you encounter the word of God truly, that's the only place to go, is face down. When we say that we are eschatological people, what we mean is that one day the glory of Jesus will be revealed to all people as it was on this mountain. That when he comes to dwell among his people, there will be no sun, for he himself will be our light. And that light will be judgment to those who refuse Christ and life to those who bow. That's what we mean when we say we're eschatological people. As I said, this moment is a preview for what is to come. And it was always part of the apostolic message. The gospel is not about cuddly kittens. Not immediately. Peter writes in his second epistle, this is part of his message from day one, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, Peter says, that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Jesus has authority, Jesus has glory, and Jesus has mercy. When the disciples fall to the ground in terror, Jesus comes and touches them and tells them to get up and not be afraid. Can you imagine? The radiance of God's glory, the uncreated light, 
the one who has given all the nations as, inherit as his inheritance, the word through whom the universe was created became a human being so that he could reach out in gentleness and touch fearful people. God did that for you and for me. This is what Jesus does for you in the Eucharist. He is bread that you can hold in your hand, that you can taste with your lips. He is wine that you can feel on your tongue. He feeds you with bread and makes you glad with wine that is himself. He does this because of his mercy. And the mercy of Jesus to the world is on display in this story, mostly through Peter. Oh, Peter. You see, just before this, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you're a prophet, some say that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, some say that you're Elijah or Jeremiah. And he says, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he is 100% dead on correct. And Jesus tells him, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood. This was revealed to you by God himself. But when Jesus goes on to explain what that means, what it means that he is Messiah, that it means that he's going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that it means that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life, well, Peter can't get on board for that. We're told that he rebukes the Messiah, the son of the living God. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus famously replies, Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. Light and cloud. Peter is illuminated and immediately confounded. He is at once the first confessor and the one whom Christ says he will build his church upon this rock. And in the very next breath, he is lost in the darkness. This confounding glory of Christ is on display most directly in John's Gospel, where Jesus consistently talks about being exalted, being lifted up in the eyes of the world, but he's talking about this. He's talking about being lifted up on the cross and that being his moment of glory. His glory is not what we expect. So Peter has just made a, a pretty big mistake here. And the very next time he opens his mouth is this chapter here. And what is he doing? He is still trying to stop Jesus from going to crucifixion. He's trying to keep him away from the mountain of pain and death and keep him trapped at the mountain of transfiguration. He's thinking, oh, finally. His glory's been revealed. We were able to bypass all that suffering stuff and just get right to the glory. So let's build a set of tabernacles so that people can come here and worship and hear the teaching, and we'll just set up shop right here. And this is where it all ends. Peter is resisting the cross. And from Jesus' own mouth, to get between him and the cross is to be doing the work of Satan. Peter is resisting the cross, and as the prototypical disciple, he is showing us ourselves. How often 
We start dreaming or talking or acting on this big urge to do something for Jesus as a way of avoiding the scandal and pain of the cross. Peter is saying, Jesus, I want to do something for you. And he's completely missing the point. And this is where the season of Lent, which begins on Wednesday, is so helpful. Because the idea of Lent is not so much about giving up Facebook or alcohol or meat as a way of showing God that you're really serious. It's about cutting out the noise and clutter of your desires so that you can obey the one command presented here. Listen to Jesus. Hear him. Listen to the crucified Christ. What is the crucified Christ saying to you? Now, some of you do need to dream bigger. You have become enamored with having nice things or an interesting career or fashionable friends, and you haven't bothered to consider what it would mean to really dwell in the light of Christ. But all of us need to be quieter, to sit in silence before the crucified Christ that we might hear what he is saying to us. But notice, it must be the crucified Christ. To truly follow him, to truly experience his authority, glory, and mercy, we must say with St. Paul, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.